Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. Today, we have a special update on the Uncovered series, which is exposing abuses of power across our state that are costing taxpayers, especially in small towns. The latest in the ongoing series uncovers a string of misconduct at a fire district in the upstate that cost taxpayers thousands and wrecked firefighters' morale. Until now, almost none of it has come to light. We'll be talking with reporters Joey Craney and Avery Wilkes about how they uncovered a string of questionable, unethical, or illegal behavior at Clear Spring Fire and Rescue. My name is Joey Craney. I'm an investigative reporter for the Post and Courier based in Columbia. And I'm Avery Wilkes. I'm an investigative reporter for the Post and Courier based in Columbia. The second installment of this series focuses on Clear Spring Fire and Rescue. So first, let's just go over some of the basics of what this agency does. What area does it serve? Tell us about that area and this agency. So Clear Spring is one of South Carolina's hundreds of special government districts. It serves about 21 square miles of territory in the Simpsonville area of Greenville County, very fast growing, well-to-do suburb of downtown Greenville. It was formed in the early 1980s to provide fire service and rescue services for that area. And it's one of these many districts that you know, are all over the state that were formed decades ago to provide these sort of hyper-local services to areas, especially in rural areas where cities and counties were not providing them. So many of them provide fire protection or uh, sewer lines, or some cases they're your water company. Some some of them pick up trash, you know, in, in, in areas. So they can be formed for a wide variety of reasons. Many of them, especially in the county level, are are fire departments like Clear Spring. This agency falls under a category we talked about on the first episode of the Uncovered series, and that's an island of governance. Can you briefly recap what that means and why it applies to the Clear Spring Fire and Rescue? Sure. We we consider Clear Spring and other special districts as islands of governance because they were created decades ago, some of them by the General Assembly, some of them by county councils, and then just kind of left alone to do whatever they want to do. Their commissioners, in many cases, are elected by very small amounts of people, you know, sometimes a few dozen people at a time uh, vote in these elections. Some of them are appointed by local legislative delegations. Some of them are appointed by county councils, some appointed by the governor. It, It really varies district to district. But the point is, you know, they're largely left alone to regulate themselves. They borrow money, they spend taxpayer money, they hire and fire fire chiefs. They, in many cases, handle huge sums of public money, but there's not a whole lot of oversight of them. You know, in in only very specific circumstances do they have to come before county council to request permission to levy tax hikes or spend public money or borrow money. But for the most part, they're just left alone. Yeah. What one expert told us is what really stands out about these kinds of agencies is that they receive even less attention than like a town council. There is this vacuum of information around them. There's extremely low participation in the elections for the commissioners who sit on these boards. The very striking example with Clear Spring is there was an election in 2015 that swung three of the five seats on the board. 
the three candidates who won all entered as write-in candidates. They defeated two people who were formerly candidates on the ballot. And they won that election in which 35 people cast votes. And that was all it took to gain control of a district that now has a budget of more than $2 million and serves a community of more than 20,000 people. Okay, so we know from that example, it doesn't take a lot of votes necessarily to get on one of these commissions. Are there many requirements, you know, qualifications that that person has to have or some kind of scrutiny of of, of who's actually being elected? Like you mentioned, these were write-in candidates. There's virtually no scrutiny around candidacies for commissioners for these kinds of agencies. Unlike other local elections, candidates can apply for these jobs and virtually avoid any tough or potentially embarrassing questions about their qualifications or their past. With Clear Spring, there was a candidate who applied to be a commissioner uh, while her husband was a firefighter at the department, and no one asked her about that. She was also not required to disclose any of her family's financial troubles, which stretched years. Through court records, we also tracked a misdemeanor theft case where she was accused of stealing money in a case where she was ordered to pay restitution. These are the kinds of things that come up when people run for for public office. But with these little watched agencies where there's very little information shared about the candidates, where the state requires you to disclose almost nothing before you submit your candidacy, people like the commissioners in Clearspring, they skate through basically with no questions asked. And one thing that we we learned is that these are very low information races for, for the commission on the on on the districts that are elected at least. You know, oftentimes they're won by a couple dozen voters or a handful of voters will will swing these elections. It doesn't really matter if you're on the ballot or not. You can easily win as a write-in candidate just by knocking on some doors. But one thing that you know, we spoke to Lynn Teague, the League of Women Voters, and a lot of her job is making sure that voters know information about the candidates that they're voting for uh, during elections. And she said that's, you know, it's fairly easy at the congressional level. It gets a little tougher at the state house level. It's really hard at the city and county council level. And it's impossible at this level. Essentially, voters are going to the polls. You know, they, they just don't know that much. There's there's not any scrutiny of these races before these people get in charge of, of fire districts and other agencies that you know, have multi-million dollar budgets. There's no background checks. All, all they really have to do to apply to be on one of these boards is, you know, sign a letter saying that they are qualified. They are qualified electors, that they are 18 years old, at least, that they haven't committed a felony, you know, in the past 15 years and that they live in the district that they're running for. I mean, that's it. And, you know, normally you you might counteract that with, you know, with candidate forums or with with scrutiny and newspaper stories about candidates, but that just doesn't exist in these really small districts. So you uncovered a lot of specific instances of questionable behavior among the leadership in this fire district. Let's start with early 2016 when the Greenville County Sheriff's Office investigated Fire Chief Gregory Merritt. What did they find? So investigators began looking into former Chief Merritt's 2015 spending and what they found were a little more than $12,000 in questionable expenses. And this is just looking at, at one year where the chief had had swiped his card for items that could not be found at the fire department. 
you know, including RV parts, including equipment and parts and services for landscaping equipment that actually the former chief owned himself, you know, audio equipment, electronics, things like that, that, that maybe didn't jump off the page as being clearly tied to a fire department's operations. You know, they continued to investigate. They, they took inventory of the fire department's belongings and found a lot of this stuff clearly wasn't bought for the fire department. And eventually the, the chief admitted as much both to the, the board and to the Greenville uh, investigators. He ended up repaying a good chunk of that money. And then he was, you know, he resigned and, and was replaced. So that was really the, the first sort of scandal that we identified. You know, some news outlets reported on on those charges and on that case. But then, you know, Joey and I found there was really no follow up about whether that was just an aberration or whether spending issues like that at Clear Spring and in other districts were, were more of the norm. So we went over briefly how people are elected to Clear Springs, this, this commission. What were commissioners doing at, at this time, at, at these years that you were looking at? As you said, they're in charge of spending money. What were they choosing to spend money on? Current and former firefighters and Clear Spring officials describe this period between 2016 and 2019 when three commissioners basically swung the board as a really different period than what had existed before. The commissioners all obtained their own government credit cards and occasionally started racking up thousands of dollars in monthly charges. Those largely centered around these end of the year parties they liked to throw. The commissioners started throwing these end of the year bashes at a downtown, it's actually outside of Greenville Hotel where they would rent out a banquet hall, pay thousands of dollars for bar service, and hosted this feast that featured prime rib for what looks to be more than 70 people. And at those parties, commissioners bought gift cards and gift certificates and charged taxpayers for that and handed those out at the parties. Um, and they also booked more than a dozen rooms for overnight stays at the hotel for commissioners, firefighters, um, and some others, uh, even though this hotel was located within 20 minutes of Simpsonville, where everyone lived. Those and other examples really painted a, a portrait of, of excess at this really small agency that firefighters say really didn't exist there before and came about through the, these new commissioners that took helm of the board. One thing that we noticed is that, as Joey said, the the firefighters said that this was way over the top. This was unlike anything they'd experienced before. Previous end-of-the-year parties were, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have dinner, you'd give out trophies to, you know, awards to some of the firemen. But, you know, one of them was held in a barn where they, they catered barbecue. Another, others of them were just held at the fire station itself. And then suddenly you're spending $10,000 at a time to throw these big parties at a hotel that was outside of your service district. So other fire districts actually had to cover for them those nights. And it was just really outside the norm of what they what they were used to. And a number of them told me that they, they thought that that was just excessive and it wasn't the right way to spend taxpayer money. One thing that irked firefighters that I spoke with was that some of the money that had gone toward these parties, that had gone toward the, the gifts and the perks, those are real dollars and, and those were taxpayer dollars. And one of the former fire chiefs told me that 
he wanted to replace breathing air packs and fire turnout gear, which is the the flame heat resistant firefighter gear that you think of when you think of a fireman. And you know those those cost money. So anytime you're spending ten thousand dollars on a party, that means you're not spending that ten thousand dollars to replace four sets of protective gear for firemen or four or five sets of, of breathing air packs, some of which was close to expiring for this fire district. You know, th- that was one thing that irked them. Another thing that Fire Chief Gabe Mole told me was that at one of the budget hearings, he, he brought that request to the board and said, we need money to replace some of these aging sets of fire turnout gear and, and breathing air packs. And instead, Phil Cantone, who was the husband of one of the commissioners, uh, instead suggested spending the money to buy three Chevy Tahoes in Texas. And so you know, the board ran with that idea. And suddenly this fire department of a little more than a dozen full-time firemen had take-home vehicles, you know, nice Chevy Tahoes for its administrators. And so the, the fire chief didn't love that either. It, it just, there were, there were all these complaints about excess and, and spending money questionably that came up example after example, you know, that, that, that they would bring up and, and saying this was out of the norm for them. You talked a little bit about how the commissioners were benefiting from the annual celebrations and these gifts that they were giving out. What other perks were the commissioners receiving at the time? The commissioners at Clear Spring had a habit of accepting these other perks and benefits. That included monthly gym memberships uh, to a local sports gym. Uh, those were valued at about 300 bucks a year. That was actually paid for through the State Firefighters Association, which is a special fund they set up that's supposed to benefit firefighters. The executive director of that group told us that uh, it's kind of unusual for commissioners to accept that perk. But in Clear Spring, we had uh, three of them who did that for a number of years. They also accepted a cell phone that they were free to use for personal or for business reasons for several years. But more significantly, there was a commissioner on the board whose husband was a firefighter. During the four years that she served on the board, he received no fewer than two promotions, which boosted his salary from about $16,000 to more than $50,000. So during the period of which his wife served on the board, his salary more than tripled. And that's another benefit that the commissioner of that board received because her family's income grew significantly. And that led to a swirl of other controversy that this firefighter was receiving special treatment due to the fact that his wife was a commissioner. Right. Let's let's dig into that more. And you spoke with her, right? That former commissioner, I believe she spoke to not just that, but also aspects of spending. What did she have to say about these different things? First, the, the spending, but then also what people said about her husband at the time receiving different treatment than other firefighters. Former Commissioner Angela Mistruli Cantone spoke with us and she defended her actions. She defended the board's actions. She said uh, the expenses were not inappropriate. She said the end of the year parties, they intended those to be celebrations of firefighters who deserved recognition for all of their hard work. We should note there is quite a bit of volunteers at this district who don't get paid. And I think the board saw these parties as an opportunity to try to, you know, give them some acknowledgement 
of the work they they volunteered throughout the year. Angela Mistruli Cantone also insisted that she completely stayed out of any personnel decisions involving her husband, who was a firefighter. She said she abstained from any votes involving department salaries, and she said she had nothing to do with the multiple promotions that her husband received while she was on the board. We should note that former fire chiefs disagreed with that uh, strongly in sworn court testimony that we obtained and in interviews with us. Multiple fire chiefs talked about the pressure they faced to protect or promote the commissioner's husband because of the fear they had that something, you know, that the commission would retaliate against them if the chiefs didn't do what they wanted. So after being fired in 2016, Cantone's former lieutenant filed a lawsuit. What did he allege in that lawsuit? Philip Cantone's former lieutenant alleged that he tried speaking up about his concerns and that he was retaliated against. Lieutenant Clayton Beeson said he raised concerns about Philip Cantone's uh, lack of job skills at one point when Philip was promoted to fire marshal. His lieutenant, Mr. Beeson, suggested he didn't have the required certification that, for that job and questioned why he was being promoted. And when he broached that subject with his superiors, who were then the fire chiefs, Mr. Beeson suggested he, he was brushed off. Eventually, he was fired by one of the former chiefs. And at that time, Mr. Beeson said uh, his chief told him they want new faces. That lawsuit was filed in federal court, ended up getting settled. It cost taxpayers more than $20,000 in legal fees. It's just another example of how some of these allegations of misconduct really became wasteful to taxpayers. One other thing that I wanted to add is that Beeson's lawsuit and the accompanying documents and sworn statements that were included really paint a picture of a fire department in turmoil and of how the sort of the the balance of power shifting at the department had really caused morale to plummet. Turnover was very high at the district. You know, you've got former chiefs testifying that they felt pressure from the board in personnel decisions, feared the board in terms of, you know, feeling like they could not discipline or fire Phil Cantone who was the husband of the commissioner, Angela. It truly paints a picture of a really dysfunctional fire district. And a lot of that tension did stem from Bill Cantone and the fact that his wife was was on the board. You said that former commissioner, Mr. Willie Cantone, d- defended her actions, defended the board's actions. Is there anything that she did say that was wrong? Was there anything that she admitted to that she said wasn't wasn't the right choice? Former Commissioner Mishuli Cantone acknowledged that she did do something wrong in one case. And that was when the Ethics Commission investigated her for her and her husband's decision to use a department vehicle to drive to Disney World for a family vacation. This incident happened in the fall of 2017. It was revealed through the State Ethics Commission investigation that Philip Cantone had rented a car to drive to Disney, but the morning they were supposed to leave, he wrecked it while on his way back from a casino in North Carolina. In the early hours of that morning when they were supposed to leave, uh, he and Angela made the decision that they would instead borrow a department SUV and drive that vehicle 
to Disney World where they had it for almost a week. One of the department's commissioners, uh, one of the sitting commissioners filed a complaint with the State Ethics Commission about that. The agency investigated uh, Ms. Julie Cantone for that and she was ultimately fined. When I asked her about this, she said that was wrong and she said that she owned that. But I should note that that's, that's really the one of the many examples of potential unethical behavior or potential misconduct that we're raising in our story. That's really the, the one case where Commissioner Mr. Lee Cantone acknowledged doing something wrong. Since this has all happened, have there been any kind of reforms or changes to the, to the district there? There have been a number. One thing that we should point out is that before all this, you know, before 2016, there were basically no rules here. The board had no bylaws. There was no employee handbook that laid out a formal process for promotions, for raises, for anything that could have regulated sort of the balance of power. Uh, One of the things that firefighters were so upset about was the fact that Phil Cantone was promoted multiple times and that his salary tripled, you know, over the course of, you know, four years. One of the things that the new regime at Clear Spring did was, uh, and the new fire chief, Michael Huffman, who took over in May 2018, was to, to kind of formalize that. So now if you want to move up the chain of command, there are written exams, there's required training, there's a clear path for a firefighter to, to move up, whereas before there were allegations that people were moving up simply because the board liked them or because the board wanted them to be in a higher position. The board got rid of commissioner credit cards where Joey and I identified a lot of the spending that was called into question. The perks that they were accepting from that firefighters fund, they stopped accepting those. Greenville County Council jumped in and took over and reformed the way that commissioners are appointed. Whereas previously they were decided by popular election, now they are appointed by Greenville County Council, which there's an application process. You go through interviews uh, with county council. They look into your background. They see what kind of experience you have. And then the full Greenville County Council votes um, on each applicant. And and people say that that is a much more rigorous screening process than than just a popular election decided by a few dozen people. The reform efforts at Clear Spring, you know, people close with the agency and experts we spoke with, they almost see it as like a blueprint. And if you're reading this story, you should care because these kinds of special districts are located all over the state. And in many places, they don't have this additional layer of scrutiny that Clear Spring now has. And we think the previous misconduct there is a, is a really good case study into how public officials can misbehave when there's no one really keeping an eye on them. One of the things that we wanted to identify at the outset of this uncovered project were types of government and, you know, islands of governance, as we mentioned earlier, where the conditions for corruption, for abuse of power, for questionable spending occur. And we're increasingly finding that those conditions are a lack of oversight a lack of accountability, a lack of watchdogs looking for this kind of stuff, a lack of auditors. And basically what we found is one really good example where all those conditions existed in Clear Spring, but also the fact that Clear Spring is, you know, one of just hundreds of these districts where some of those conditions exist. So, of course, we can't definitively say that this is happening elsewhere, 
But as we note in the story, you know, there have been more than a dozen officials of these types of special districts who have either been fined by the Ethics Commission or charged criminally over the past decade. So we, we know that there are issues happening elsewhere. If you think that's happening in your area, feel free to, to give us a call. All right, listeners, that's all for today. You can read this latest installment of Uncovered, the first installment, or listen to our last episode about this series at postingcourier.com slash uncovered. If you have questions about today's show or ideas for what we should cover in a future episode, write to us at understandsc at postingcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. Be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can be one of the first to hear about new episodes. You can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and we'll be back later this week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.